Welcome to the Limited Slip Podcast, your week's automotive news in 20 minutes. We compress all the news in the auto, motorcycle, and racing worlds for you into our 20-minute podcast. Your hosts are Dave, an attorney and car importer, and Borja, who owns an auto repair shop. This is Dave and Borja on this week's Limited Slip Podcast. This week's Limited Slip Podcast is brought to you by Retro Mobile Designs. If you are looking for auto and racing themed t-shirts that look cool to the average Joe, but get an approving nod from other petrol heads, check them out at RetroMobileDesigns.com. Good morning, Borja. Top of the morning to you, my good sir. It's been it's been a little bit. We got like Things have slowed down in the automotive world quite a bit. They, they certainly have, yes. But uh, here we are. Indeed, here we are for another wonderful podcast. Um, I wanted to start off talking about electric pickup trucks. This is something that we've talked about a couple of times. We have. We have a new entry coming up into the electric pickup segment, which is a segment which is yet to exist, if we're honest with ourselves. And this should be no surprise, but the new the newest entry is going to be the Silverado, the Chevrolet Silverado. They have promised a, an electric version of the Silverado. I think it's going to come out here pretty soon, actually. And it, Interestingly, they say it will have a 400 mile range. We don't have a whole lot of details on it, but I, I feel like that's uh, I feel like this is potentially pretty big news. I mean, obviously you have Ford going in with the F-150 and, and uh, even GM. I mean, GM is making the Hummer. I think that this Silverado is going to be very closely related to the to the Hummer, although I think that the Hummer will be kind of the, the premium you know, the premium lifestyle one, whereas the Silverado is going to be more of a, uh, what you actually use a truck for one. You know, like you said, um, it's not a surprise. I mean, uh, GM already announced, of course, that they were coming out with the Hummer pickup as being a full EV. Ford has also announced that they're coming out with an F-150 that's going to be pure EV. So, you know, it's keeping up with the times and keeping up with the competition. I mean, the, I wouldn't be surprised if in a few months' time, uh, Ram came out saying, hey, we're going to be doing also an EV pickup. Uh, so, yeah, no surprise there. We don't know a whole lot about it uh, besides what you said. You know, looks like it's going to have a pretty decent range, but we don't know if, what the range is going to be when you actually load that pickup truck up, which is something that is really, uh, I think, uh, the most important part of an EV pickup is it's not how much range you can get with it when it's empty. It's how much you can get range with it when you're actually towing something or you have something in the bed. That's why you buy a pickup truck in the first place. Yeah. Um, and so those are the numbers that we'll be more intrigued to find out and see how it does when, when they finally arrive here. Uh, in 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 the states, and we we can actually see some of those real world numbers of towing and and cargo capacity and so on. Yeah, I, I agree that I think especially when you're talking about such a utilitarian vehicle. I mean, you know, again, people people buy these things for work, you know, for their right. livelihoods, and and um, 
Yeah, I agree. The the number, the range number that really matters is the real the real world fully loaded mm-hmm. on a cold day range. Because going uphill. Going going uphill. Because you have to be, you know, what what is the range that in the middle of winter I can load this thing up and pull, you know, pull the maximum towing capacity. What is my real real world range? under those conditions because guess what that's got to be at the very least 250 miles i think for it to be practical yeah now now are there other conditions other situations where you're working and and you and you know that you're never going to need that capability yeah yeah i mean if you if you're uh i don't know um if you live in California or, or Texas and you work in the city and you know that the truck based on your work schedule never leaves, you know, never goes further than X number of miles. Yeah. You know, totally go for it. Makes sense. But <clears throat> you know, you need your truck to be dependable, you need it to function in adverse conditions and, and yeah. So I, I, I would, I would also be very interested to know what that number is. Yeah. So we don't know what that number is right now for the Hummer, nor for the Silverado EV, nor for the F-150 that's coming. So we're definitely looking forward to getting those those numbers and seeing how they actually stack up and if it's going to be worth buying now or if it's worth saying, you know what, the technology is still not quite there. You might as well buy either a gas or diesel for a few more years. Yeah. Well, and, and also these are all only... The, all of these vehicles are built on a um, <clears throat> a quarter ton, uh, you know, chassis. None of them are are twenty five hundreds or yeah. or thirty five hundreds. You know, they're 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 not heavy duty vehicles. So, you know, that that'll be interesting to see how that market develops too. Yeah, my point is, it's a good time to explore options because there's plenty of them out there yeah. you want a hybrid you have them you want a gas big gas v8 you can have that you want a small diesel you can have that too so no matter what you're looking for you're going to have it and now we have of course the f-150 and the chevy silverado making its way as an ev vehicle that's just going to add to your options uh which i think at the end of the day what both um gm and ford are looking to do is of course, we we know that they decided to stop making sedans and smaller vehicles, with the exception of a couple of vehicles. Uh, they're heavily invested in big SUVs, SUVs, crossovers, and trucks. So they want to make sure that they're giving everybody as many options as possible to retain their customer base, um, because they know that it's getting very difficult to uh, get new customers. They want to make sure that they retain their loyal fans. And the only way that they can do that is by offering a plethora of options that would suit everybody. And so no matter what you want, Ford will have one, no matter what you want, GM will have one. And so if you're a GM fan, you will go with the GM. If you're a Ford fan, you will probably go with the Ford. Yeah, that's interesting because that's exactly what happens. For example, with the German manufacturers like Audi, BMW, Mercedes, they've captured pretty much all of the market share for the luxury vehicles that they can capture. Right. I mean, like, like, like the only way for them to expand their market is to reach out into smaller and smaller niches. And that's one of the reasons why you see 
these, uh, you know, four door coops and, you know, all the different weird types of body styles that they have is because they're trying to reach into different niches yep. because, because there's no other way to get growth. And, and that's a good point because I do think that you're right. That that's kind of the same way that the big three manufacturers in the U S have to treat trucks and large SUVs. Cause you know, let's be honest, that's what you buy. There's, that's what not, you buy. Yep. there's not, there's not really any other choices, you know, it, you know, realistically, I mean, obviously there are some choices, but those, but you know, they're really small and, and not very many people as far as market share goes. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that's an interesting, that's an interesting point. I was fun fact. Um, diesel engines in pickup trucks were actually started, uh, as you, as you mentioned in the mid seventies, late seventies, and they were, they were referred to as quote unquote, high altitude versions of the pickup trucks. Because obviously, you know, if you have, if you live at high altitude, like, like you Borja in Utah, mm-hmm. you see a significant decrease. It's, I think it's about a 15% decrease in power, um, in a naturally aspirated engine over where it would be at sea level. And then also you have potentially cooling issues. Um, now in modern vehicle, modern vehicles are all so good. It doesn't matter, doesn't but matter. But back in the seventies, it did matter. And so people were concerned about their ability, you know, you know, I mean, 15% decrease in towing capacity, for example, that's a big deal. And so they made uh, these high altitude versions with turbocharged diesel engines. Um, interest, which is a, even a pretty interesting concept. I mean, it, it, anyways, back in the seventies, this was turbocharging was pretty new for automotive in the automotive world not all diesel engines by any means were turbocharged, but that's how yeah. they marketed them. And I, th- I thought that was interesting. And, you know, right. and it's interesting that you bring this up because it, you know, it, like you said, it started back in the seventies, but it didn't end until not too long ago. Uh, I, re- you know, I recall uh, Ford's uh, 7.3 diesel engine, which for many consider one of the best engines that Ford has ever done when it comes to diesel engines. They also have high, high altitude versions on those engines. Yeah. And, you know, if you need to get a replacement engine on, on your truck, uh, and if you have a 7.3 on, 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 on your pickup truck, um, you may have to look at a high altitude version because that's what your vehicle uh, came with from the factory. And you have to use that same type of engine, mainly due to emissions, to make sure that you comply with emission standards for that vehicle and you're able to register it uh, if you live in a, in a place where emissions are required. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm talking 7.3 was sold, you know, up until early 2000s. Yeah. So it wasn't that long ago that they still had that concept of we need to build this diesel engine specifically more for high altitude use than uh, well, low. Well, and these diesel trucks seem ubiquitous these days. I mean, I think, I think that the take rate for the diesels for the big three right now on their heavy duty trucks is it's above 70%. And the majority of people who are buying the gas engines are um, commercial users, you know, people who are fleet buyers primarily. I think that's, I think that's about half of the gas engine. So it seems really normal to have a heavy duty truck with a diesel engine now. Yeah, it's the norm. That did not start until 1999, actually, with, um, with the introduction of what, what is, 
now referred to as the Ford heavy duty series, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the 2500, the, the, two, the F250 and the F350 in 1999, they received for the first time ever an entirely separate frame. They became an entirely separate vehicle. And that really dramatically increased the capability. And that's when these diesel engines started to be really popular and not kind of a niche or a high altitude version thing. My, my dad actually was telling me, um, <clears throat> this is years and years ago when I was shopping around for my, for my diesel truck. He was telling me that <clears throat> about the, the transmissions. Cause when we grew up, we had a, a, a you know, like a big camper. And so we had a diesel truck you know, living in Utah, I grew up in Utah. So we grew up in Utah. We needed a high out, one of these high altitude diesel trucks. And mm -hmm. uh, that's what we had. My, my dad was telling me that these things ate transmissions like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> and um, it, he said it was so bad that it was almost, it was every other time that he would change the oil. He would just count on getting a new transmission. Jeez. They couldn't make transmissions that were strong enough to handle the torque on these things because it was much higher torque than they were getting anywhere else. And they just, they just munched through transmissions like nothing else. But, well, that's definitely been a, an issue that they have resolved. Uh, no need to change your transmission every other oil change. <laughs> right. Um, I know. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I think, you, I think you're spot on. I mean, here in Utah, every time I drive anywhere and, and, and look at a pickup truck, if it's a heavy duty pickup truck, nine out of ten times it's a diesel truck yeah uh, you only get that that one truck every at every 10 that it's the a big uh, v8 gas model and instead of a instead of a diesel and you know people of course they're buying diesels because they over the last two decades really the diesel engine has been exceptionally refined uh, here in the States when it comes to pickup trucks. It's been refined for quite some time in Europe, uh, but as far as big, big engines like we use in, in heavy-duty trucks here in the, in the States, it hasn't been really till 2006 and on that there was a, a definitely jump in refinement uh, in the diesel. They don't sound as clunky as they used to. They're not as slow as they used to. Uh, they're also much, much efficient, more efficient than they used to. Um, all this refinement, though, does come at a price tag, which means that they're also far more expensive to maintain and repair yes. than the older ones. And so that's uh, that's one of the things that, you know, when we have people coming to our shop and say, hey, I'm thinking about buying a diesel truck. Uh, my very first question, and they ask me, you know, should I buy a diesel truck? My very first question is, do you actually need one? Uh, and uh, it's not that we want to turn business away because we don't, but diesel maintenance and repairs are expensive. That's just the way it is. There's no two ways about it. Everything is expensive on a diesel truck. And so unless you're towing with it on a very regular basis, we always recommend people, get, if you need, if you actually need a heavy duty truck, get a gas. Yeah. Unless you're towing, you're towing on a very regular basis, which in this case, in that case, you just have to go with the diesel. Yeah. There's no two ways about it. So, yeah. Well, uh, you save on fuel so much by having the diesel when you're towing long distance, you know, if you're towing regularly, but I, I might say that I am actively considering right now getting a new truck and I'm looking at a heavy duty gas. I mean, that's, that's really what I'm looking for because, you know, I, I don't use my truck that much. I don't tow that much. And it's just not, 
the diesel maintenance is so much more and, and everything is much more expensive on the diesel. Everything. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, everything, I mean, from oil changes to brakes, to wheel hubs, to injectors, you, you name it, everything is just at least 20 to 30% more expensive, at least sometimes yeah. even, even more than that. So, well, let's anyways, move, yeah, let's, let's move on. Yeah. Let's move on. Um, before we get to the rest of the show, take a moment to subscribe. If you enjoy our insights and want to help keep our lights on, you can visit our businesses. Borja runs a full-service auto repair shop in Orem, Utah. You can find him on Facebook at Auto Pros Utah. And trust me, he really can fix anything. Dave imports cars from South America and Europe, primarily classic trucks like FJ40s and Land Rovers. But he can help you source any classic car in any condition that you want, from cars that were never sold in the U.S. to trucks that are just cheaper with less rust overseas. Visit Dave at DaveTheCarImporter.com. There's no reason for you not to have the car of your dreams, even if it's forbidden fruit. I, I saw that Ford is going to make dedicated Bronco dealerships. So this is, this is interesting. It was actually a request from the dealers themselves. They said, Hey, please let us make some dedicated, you know, let us build some dedicated buildings where we only sell Broncos and Ford looked at it and they said, yeah, sure. So they're going to build 100 Bronco dealerships on these Ford dealer lots. I think it's um, the least interesting. Um, I just don't know if building these buildings would actually increase the ROI for them in any way, shape or form. Uh, Cause I mean, these buildings are not gonna be cheap, let's be honest. Yeah. We, so yeah, maybe, I, I don't know. And this is a far-fetched thought. There's been um, not so much by uh, the the car really enthusiast community, but for those people who are not true car enthusiasts, who may be a little bit of a car enthusiast, they were a little bit confused by the renderings that we initially saw about the Bronco. And then when the Bronco Sport came out Mm -hmm. and a lot of people were under the impression that, well, we saw these renderings online and we saw these videos in YouTube and then we get this Bronco Sport. And they were thinking that that was it. That's, That's what we're getting. Uh, which it isn't. I mean, I've, I've said it before. I think the, the biggest issue with the Bronco Sport is that it's called a Bronco. I think it should have been called Escape and just, just leave the Bronco for the one that everybody wants. Yeah, it's or, or come up with a new nameplate, you know. So. Yeah, or come up with a new nameplate. And so maybe, I don't know, this is just a maybe, they're building the, these 100 buildings to try to maybe uh, separate a little bit the Bronco Sport from the what's going to be the regular Bronco uh, and maybe attract some additional sales. I have no idea. Either way, uh, I don't know. I mean, either way, I don't know if that's that's the plan. That's the thought. Could be, could not. But yeah, in the day and age that we live right now, I just don't think that adding a standalone uh, Bronco building is going to maybe increase. Or who knows? Maybe just another thought here. Maybe they just want this to be, you know, such an, an, a different uh, and unique buying experience that you can walk to one of these buildings, fully customize your order uh, right there. You're going to have a few Broncos that you can test drive over there. They have in the showroom. So just have it uh, as a whole new experience to maybe try to compete more with, with Jeep and the Wrangler. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. 
I think it's an interesting, I do think it's an interesting theory. I, and I do have a hard time imagining how this is going to pay off in the long run. Uh, I, you know, your point on return on investment, because this is, you know, the new building is expensive and how useful is that going to be for the next, you know, and, you know, I mean, are you, you going to use that building for the next 30 years? Uh, right. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, I imagine that they'll look a lot like what Land Rover dealerships look like now. You know, it looks like some mountain right. lodge with some rocks that you can, you know, that are perfectly designed so you can drive up the Bronco with no problem. Right. Um, but feel like you're doing something impressive. And then they can have all the accessories and whatever lined up. So I understand that it would be nice to have a dedicated part of the dealership, you know, a dedicated part of the building to the Bronco. A whole new building is a little bit going a little bit far though but yeah and it, i mean it would make more more sense of course they're only building a hundred of these around the states and it's obviously going to make more sense in certain areas of the country than others uh, yeah. texas colorado utah wyoming you know places where these kind of vehicles are extremely popular yeah then uh, it's going to make more sense to have those buildings there but how much sense as a whole well we don't know yeah. yet but apparently oh, well, they think uh, that there is so and the really really high volume dealers it makes sense too because you know if you're if you're the main dealer in atlanta or charlotte or los angeles or whatever obviously all of those cities have multiple ford dealers but typically in a metropolitan area there's one or two dealers that kind of steal the show hmm and that, that really have a lot more volume than the other dealers and they're a lot larger. So, you know, if you have so much volume, then, you know, it, you can obviously make a case. So. Yeah. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, I have an interesting, moving on if we may, I have an interesting piece of information regarding Porsche um, okay. and uh, Q1 earnings uh, for uh, 2021. Well, um, especially regarding the <clears throat> all-electric Taycan. So people were saying, and there was some speculation that I read uh, a few weeks ago that, you know, we all know that the Taycan, when it first was released, it was a massive success. But there were some rumors that, well, you know, that success is kind of fading away and because we've already seen it for quite some time on the streets. A lot of people have reviewed it in YouTube. It was just kind of the hype of being an, an all-new electric vehicle, especially for Porsche. Everybody wanted to get in, but that's kind of now slowing down. Well, and the first and the first Model S true competitor. Yeah. Turns out that that is a totally incorrect statement because uh, Porsche has happily, very happily reported that uh, during Q1, uh, one on every eight Porsche that they sell has been a Taycan, wow. which that includes a 552% more than a year ago in Q1. They, they were able to sell 9,072 units just in Q1 on, on, on the Taycan. Uh, that also comes out to a 12.6% of total Porsche sales. And they've had a record Q1, even though we're still kind of living in the pandemic and uh, things are still not back to what we would call a normal life. Uh, Porsche has increased its global car sales during the first quarter of 2021 by 36% uh, over uh, year over year. 
and uh, they were also very happily reported they were able to achieve double digit growth sales in all sales regions so they're doing fantastic hmm. especially Taipan. Um, that's interesting uh, that, that's very interesting i wonder i yeah interesting news yeah i mean uh, it's if you look at the Taycan, I still think it's an extremely compelling vehicle. Uh, sure, it doesn't have the range as uh, a Tesla Model S, but I think it's much better looking than a Tesla Model S. It's much better built than a Tesla Model S. Um, and for um, and well, of course, we I forgot to mention that it has the wonderful uh, Porsche badge on it. So anything that has a Porsche badge, you know, it's going to be good, and that's not exception. Yeah, people still want it, and they're keeping up with the demand. They're very happy to sell more and more Taycans, which I think it, it brings also an interesting point that we have mentioned before. The more of these EV vehicles that they sell, the more that Porsche will be able to not only build interesting cars like the GT3 and the GT3 RS and the GT2s and all these awesome 911s, uh, because of, first of all, that we have the money to fund those builds, but also because they're selling so many EV vehicles, they can also sell uh, more gas engines without impacting their CO2 emissions and averages that they need to be in, in order for them to sell those cars. So hmm. I think it's good news all around. Well, speak, speaking of large electric sedans from German manufacturers that happen to be oh, yes. highly luxurious. We have the Mercedes-Benz EQS is now out and about. We have actual mm -hmm. physical ones for people to sit in and drive in and talk about. So we've seen quite a few reviews from that. Um, I think overall, the reception has been positive. Um, basically this is the electric S class, right? So, I mean, it's going to be full of tech and it's electric. So they feel they've, they've really gone the extra mile as far as tech goes in the EQS. Um, I gotta say though, I, I, I really liked the design and the renderings. But now that I've seen it, it's not, it doesn't look as good as I thought it did, if that makes sense. What do you think about the design? I actually, I actually liked it. I think this is going to be one of those cars that um, you just have to see in person to either say yes or no. Uh, you know, there's plenty of cars out there that you look at the pictures online or, and you say, yeah, and then you look at it in person and you're like, no. Or the other way around, you think, no, it doesn't look that great online, but then you look at it in person and you're like, actually, you know, yes. Um, I actually wouldn't, so far as saying as this is the S-Class um, EV vehicle, because I think it's a little bit small for, uh, for being an S-Class. I think tech-wise, it's going to be up there, no question about it. But as far as size, I would say it's more something in between it's slightly bigger than a C-Class, but not quite as big as an E-Class and definitely not quite as big as an S-Class. So I think it fits uh, in, in somewhere in between an E-Class. It's a mixture between an E-Class and a C-Class. Um, and but I don't... I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with you on that because I think that the... I mean, the first off, it's in the name, you know, EQS. S. 
I think that's what they intended. But the, yes, it is slightly shorter overall. Shorter. Mm -hmm. But the interior space is actually slightly more than an S class. And basically that's because they don't have an engine. So they can, right. you know, and there and there is no front trunk in the EQS. It's all taken up with, you know, electrics and computers and all the all the different mechanical pieces that it needs and, and electrical components. So all of that is kind of in the front. And then that allows you to push the passenger compartment forward. Yep. Giving you more space. So I I I, I do think that it's the electric. S class equivalent, but anyways. Well, I mean, the look is going to be uh, as every other special EV car. They're going to be a little bit controversial. You're going to love it or you don't. Uh, and that's just really the way that EVs are now uh, kind of uh, coming along. But something that's very interesting about this um, F or EQS Mercedes is, uh, I think that this is probably the the first time that a manufacturer has come up with a true true Model S rival. There's been other manufacturers that says, yes, our goal is to be a rival to the Model S, but honestly, they've fallen short, whether it be in range or uh, specs or uh, interior features or things of that nature. This is definitely not the case. This is up there with the Model S in every way, shape, and form. Uh, and uh, I think that something that we should talk about is Range, because I think that's probably one of the most exceptional things about this uh, new EQS is the the range, which comes out at a very impressive 478 miles. It, yeah, and that's on the European cycle. I think we'll be yeah. right around 400 and you know EPA miles. And, yeah, um, but still at 400 EPA miles, it's still impressive. Yeah, no, it is. It is impressive. And one of the things that's the most one of the ways that they've accomplished that range is actually through aerodynamics, because it is it, it is the most, the most dynamically efficient vehicle for sale. Now, it's close. OK, I mean, the you may not realize because it doesn't seem like it has this super aerodynamic shape, but the, the Model S is actually extremely uh, has very, very low drag. And so the EQS just slightly beats it. Although one of the, one of the things I'm disappointed in is, is that you only get the highest drag, uh, the lowest drag in the EQS with the 18 inch wheels. And those aren't going to be available in the U S I, I mean, that could easily be a one or 2% difference just, just from the wheels as far as the drag coefficient goes. And yep. I mean, that has a, a fairly true you know if that much of the gain is from the aerodynamics reducing the aerodynamic efficiency is going to you know reduce your range so well yeah we'll see i mean we'll see how much uh the the the, the actual range comes down here in the state of course as it happens with tesla and with this eqs and every other ev out there the 478 miles it's always going to be in perfect conditions Right. So we're actually interested to see what you know. What we have seen with with Tesla is you get on on sunny days, uh, not on cold winters, but uh, just on regular spring, summer, fall days, you get about a ten to maybe 12, 13 percent decrease of what the manufacturer says as far as range. Yeah. Um, so somewhere around that neighborhood. So we're expecting that this EQS is going to be right around the same, maybe 10 to 13% uh, 
less of what they tell you the range is going to be on uh, spring, summer, fall. On winter, we do know that range can decrease as much as 30%. So, um, well, that's a, that's an interesting point because I know that the, for example, we were talking about the Taycan and how it has lower range than the, than the, <clears throat> than the Tesla, despite having similar battery size. And part of that comes down to how they report the range because Tesla basically says, here's our range. And they give you, you know, the max, you know, perfect conditions. Whereas Volkswagen group, including Porsche, when they have their electric vehicles and their hybrids, they're, they're quoting what they think is the repeatable range. So the, you know, the, the Volkswagen group numbers tend to be very close to real, real world numbers, you know, during, on a, on a good day, you know, not during winter time, but real sure. world numbers during the summer or the spring. <clears throat> I wonder where Mercedes Benz is falling in that because they are, they are German and that's a very Germanic way of doing it. Um, so I wonder if that's their, this is the absolute maximum range like Tesla does, or if they're saying this is our repeatable range, like, like Volkswagen group does. Yep. And then speaking now of range, 478 miles, as we, as we said on the European cycle, uh, you already mentioned that it's the most aerodynamic vehicle out there, which of course is going to massively help on uh, range. And then the other thing is battery size, 110 kilowatts. Yeah. Big, big battery. Good. Thing. Big battery. Yeah. yeah. And so, of course, you combine the big battery with the most aerodynamic vehicle. It's not hard to believe that they're going to get exceptionally well range. Yeah. So. I think the interior design. So, like I said, the exterior design, I, I thought when I first saw the images of it, I thought it was going to be really handsome. And then I was a little bit disappointed. I still think it's a handsome vehicle. I'm just a little bit disappointed when I now that I've seen it in videos next to people and, you know, not in a studio. The interior, however, is amazing yes it, it, it it's basically let me say this you look at the the interior especially the the, the uh, drivers and passenger interiors and all the screens that you have it looks it, it makes a tesla look like it came out of the 1980s uh, yeah it, it really does, makes it, it looks outdated it really does date the Tesla. Now it's a different, it's a very, very different design philosophy, whereas the yes. Tesla is very it, almost Scandinavian in its minimalism and the and the the EQS is very European luxury. You know, it's it's not minimalist in any way, <laughs> especially yeah. when it comes to screens. I mean, the screens are just gargantuan. Uh, you have a full length screen. I mean, the entire dashboard is basically a screen. Um, and, and what, and what we're saying the entire dashboard, we're saying that the only thing from, from basically driver door to passenger door that is not a screen are the air vents. Right. Because every, everything else is a screen from door to door. Yeah. So. And it looks good. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of having actual buttons for stuff because I feel like that's, I think that's actually much better for the driver. And, you know, you, if you can twist a knob or push a button, I feel like that, I, I think it's a lot better. I think it's safer, but everyone seems to be going design wise into these, you know, massive screens and, and touch screens for everything, including climate control and everything else. And it, it really does look good in the EQS. Yeah. And I think that we're starting to get to uh, a point 
both because of manufacturer refinement, but as well as, well, it's been like this for a number of years. So consumers are getting used to having touch screens in their vehicles. But I agree. I think that for certain things, especially uh, climate controls, I, I would much prefer having actual knobs for anything that's climate control related than having to go to a menu. Um, everything else, I'm kind of like, okay, you know, I, I'm pretty okay with having a screen, but I think that the transition to uh, moving over to having everything integrated into the infotainment system, uh, it's people are getting more used to it and people are being far more okay with it than a few years back. And I think it's it's that combination is that it's kind of becoming the norm. So people are getting used to seeing that on vehicles, plus manufacturers are getting better and better at designing more intuitive, easy systems that are easy to access certain settings uh, like climate control settings and not having to go through three different screens just to access your air conditioning system. But, yeah, yeah, but that's also, I mean, I think that you can kind of highlight this in all of these vehicles, all these high-end vehicles now, they all have gesture control. They all have a mm -hmm. voice assistant. Voice control. Mm -hmm. um, and none of those work very well, right? But they have to try to make those because it's so complicated and you have to do everything through the screen and you can't do it while you're driving because you have to you know, take your eyes off the road to look at it, et cetera. Yep. Um, and, yeah, so I, I think that that's kind of evidence of those systems which don't really work very well. That's kind of evidence that maybe this whole everything being in the screens and then through the infotainment system is maybe not a wonderful idea. But you know, but again, that's that's where everyone seems to be going that way. Um, yeah. Interestingly, so the the screen that's on the passenger side, if there's not a passenger the the car actually turns that screen off which i thought was pretty interesting and and it has a camera that monitors the driver's eyes and if the driver is spending too much time looking at the screen that's in the middle or on the passenger side it'll actually take some of those menus and pull them over like kind of like into the instrument cluster area so that the driver can see those things i thought that was another pretty interesting concept That's it for this week's Limited Slip Podcast. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss our insights into next week's automotive news. If you want to help us keep the content coming, leave a five-star review and visit our businesses at DaveTheCarImporter.com, where Dave helps clients import their dream cars from South America and Europe for a flat fee. Or Borja's business on Facebook at Auto Pros Utah, a full-service auto repair shop. It's been Dave and Borja on this week's Limited Slip Podcast.